So for those of you who were here two weeks ago, we started a very short, small study of the book of Zephaniah, two-week. What we're going to do is we're going to look today at the rest of Zephaniah, chapter 2 and chapter 3, chapter 2 and 3. So a quick recap of what we did last time. Last time, we got the entire history of the Old Testament, right? We started with Adam. Some of you are like, yeah, it was long. We started with Adam, and we went all the way, all the way to the kings, where basically everyone did not follow the Lord. And we saw this, this pendulum, this constant swing of man after man after man who loved the Lord, did what the Lord called, and then completely blew it. Right? Starting with Adam, everything was good. God created this perfect world for him to exist in. Life was perfect. And God said, you can have everything and anything that you want, except this one thing. And Adam, he's, he, he's living the life. He's naming all the animals. Life is good, but he, he wants it. He wants that one thing. And he, and he goes after it. And, and from then on, it's just the story of, of failure again and again and again of people who are following the Lord and following their idols. Following the Lord, following their idols. And it's, it's really this, this epic story of, of God's grace where he's saying, I love you still. No matter how often you run after idols, I still love you and I want you. And we're going to see where that ends today. We're going to see where that ends. Picking up with the last major king, Solomon, we have Saul, David, Solomon. Solomon loved the Lord, right? He builds this glorious temple that his son provided all the materials for, or his father provided all the materials for, David. And God said to David, David, you're not going to build this temple because you've been a man of war. You have blood on your hands. Your son Solomon is going to build this temple. And Solomon does, and it's this glorious, beautiful temple. And Solomon loves the Lord, but Solomon also loves himself some women, right? He loves 700 wives. I know, right? A lot of us have a hard time loving one. He's got 700. That's a lot. And that in and of itself wasn't necessarily a problem, but the problem comes when he tries to please all these women, right? He's got 700. And what we learned in Jonah is we learned that we have this tendency, this idolatry tendency that says, what am I going to sacrifice? What, what in my integrity am I going to sacrifice to please someone else? And what Solomon does is he says, okay, you're from somewhere else. You have other gods. Sure, I'll set up some idols. You can worship them too. And God says, no, you are to worship me alone. And from after Solomon, it's just total destruction. King after king after king, not following the Lord, not following his will, but following their own idols and doing whatever they want. There's a few small exceptions, namely with Hezekiah from Judah, but primarily after Solomon, it's just hundreds of years of evil from the throne. And it's right in the middle of this evil that we get the book Zephaniah. So keep that in the back of your mind as we're going through this. Hundreds of years of of godless, idol-worshiping kings and people. So keep that in the back of your mind. In chapter 1, Zephaniah starts off in a a very heavy tone. Some some people after the service two weeks ago said, man, that was hellfire and brimstone. This is is heavy stuff. And read this... 
And as I've been reading it the last couple weeks, I, I can hear and almost feel God's pleading. He's saying, listen to me. Listen to me. Destruction is coming if you don't let go. It's coming. You can't run away from it. Please cling to me. Let go of the things you're, you've been following me. You've been following and cling to me because I'm the only thing that will satisfy you. I'm the only one who will bring you joy. We, we saw that God is slow to get angry and quick to forgive. But it's also been a long, long time in the history of Judah. So Zephaniah gives us this glimpse of destruction that's coming because of idolatry. And, and we saw how similar we are today. You know, thousands of years have gone by, but human beings are still human beings. We, we are I- identical in much of the things that we face. The, the world is, is offering us so many idols. They're saying, have this, take this, look this way. If you get this thing, you'll be happy. Right? And, and what we do is we find ourselves in this cycle of buying things that we already have because we think that they'll make us happy. And they don't. It is an empty road. We are chasing things that will not fulfill us. We saw how in each one of us, we, we fight this pendulum swing, this, this urge in us to go one way or the other, one way that says, I'm going to jump into the world fully. I'm going to embrace all of culture. I'm going to primarily live my, my life outside of the church, and I'm going to do what I want. I'm not going to look any different, and I'm going to embrace all of this. And that, that's one side. Some of us, we have this tendency. And others of us have this tendency to kind of separate ourselves from the world. We want to put this hedge of protection around us. And ultimately what this is, is this is our need to control. Right? This is our need to control our lives. We want to be the boss. We want to call the shots. Right? We don't want anyone telling us what to do. We want to create our own realities. This is true. And what does this look like in our culture? In our culture, what does it look like to create your own reality? What this looks like is parents have a four-month-old, and they decide, you know what, we're not going to tell anyone if this is a boy or a girl. We're, we're going to let this kid decide for themselves what it is. And some of you chuckle because you know this, uh, this is true. This is going on right now. It, this is news. Right? I don't know about you, but for me, this, this would have been bad news. You know, it, think about it for a second. If you were a kid, think about what it would have been like if what you thought you wanted to be actually became true. For my wife, she would be a whale because she loved whales when she was little. She was obsessed with them. I'm a whale, Mom. Actually, you're not a whale. You're a little girl. And that's a good thing. For me, this would have been much more problematic than being a whale because I grew up with two sisters. And... I grew up spending a lot of time playing with dolls and Barbies. And it wasn't Ken. It was always like Shasta Skipper. I, I, would have been, I would have been in a bad place. But no, I have a good dad who says, you're a man. Right? We can't create our own realities. This is ridiculous. But this is the world we live in. The world we live in says, you can be whatever you want to be without any guidelines. And God says, no, I've created you for a purpose. There is order to my creation. You can't just be whatever you want to be. This is simply not 
true. In chapter 1, we also saw how Judah was going to be judged for their deceitful and wicked hearts. And, and we talked about how hard it is as a church to be honest with one another. Right? Because we want to look good. We want people to think highly of us. Right? We, we want to have the right education, the right job, the right family, the right clothes, the right car. We serve this idol that says we won't be respected unless we look a certain way. And we have television that constantly says you need to look this way. Right? It's, it's constantly being bombarded on us in our culture. Zephaniah says, you're worshiping everything but me. You're worshiping image. You're worshiping sex. You're worshiping creation. You're full of violence. You're full of deceit. And you think you are your own God. This is a problem. Zephaniah is crying out to, his, to the people and he's saying, let go. Let go of these things. Humble yourself because a day of wrath is coming. And it's coming quick. You're here in the morning, gone in the morning. Right? You're like dew on the grass. For some of us, you know, there's constant dew on the grass. That's not the case. Sun's out. Gr- grass is dewless. Here in the morning, gone in the morning. Life is short. All you have to do is talk to someone who's lived a few years. Right, a little while ago, I was talking to my grandma, and she said, it's weird, I look in the mirror, and, and I think of myself as still being 16. Like, my mind is still there. But I look in the mirror and see someone very, very different. And I do that, too. I lift up my hair. I'm like, man, i got a receding hairline. Like, aren't I? I'm young. Come on. Dad, oh, man. Oh. But it's true. Life is short. And Zephaniah gives us this, this dreadful portrayal of, of God's discipline and, and how appalling it's going to be, this day of wrath, this, this day of distress, this day of anguish and, and devastation and darkness and gloom. And the whole earth is going to be filled with a full and sudden end. Zephaniah does not give us a pretty picture it is a scary image that we get from chapter 1, and it gets worse. So open up your Bibles to Zephaniah chapter 2, starting with verse 4. Before we get in, chapter 1 was, a re- was addressed to Judah. This was addressed to God's people. It was all to them. God saying, judgment is coming to you, Judah. You can't hide from it. It's here. It's coming. Chapter 2 reaches out a bit, and it goes beyond Judah. He reaches the people of the east, the west, the north, and the south. So all of chapter 2 is broken up into chunks, giving judgment to each one of these people groups. And then in chapter 3, he comes back to Judah, and he says, Oh, no, no, you're not off the hook yet. We're coming back to you. So let's get into that. I'm going to break these down into chunks, and I'm going to read just a, a verse from each chunk. So 4 through 7, Judah is, I'm sorry, not Judah, Judah's west is Philistine. These are, these are the people who Zephaniah is talking to in verses 4 through 7. Verse 5, Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nations of the Cherethites. Of the, the word of the Lord is against you. 
O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. Now he goes east in verses 8 through 11, through Moab and Ammon. Verse 11 says, The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down, each in its place, all the lands of the nation. He goes south in verse 12 to Ethiopia and Egypt. And he says, You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by the sword. And he ends north in Assyria in verses 13 to 15. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. 15. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. How did that happen? This was a great and mighty city. How is this possible? Now back to Judah. God says, no, it's, it's come, I'm coming back to you. You're not off the hook. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city, She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. If you haven't gotten the point yet, judgment is coming. I know some of you are like, geez, Josh, come on, easy with the judgment. Closing our eyes and covering our ears will not make this go away no matter how hard we try. And I will preach this until I die. Because not comprehending the weight of our sin diminishes the value of the cross. So the more we understand how weighty our sin is, the more glorious Jesus looks. And that is the aim of this sermon today as we close much, much later. Oh, man. So what do we know about judgment? Right? I keep railing off judgments coming, judgments coming. Right? Well, we know this. It didn't happen last week. Right? We're here. If it did, we're in trouble. Right? We got the wrong thing going. But we know two things. Jesus tells us two things about judgment. Number one is that it's coming. It, it's simply coming. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 29, we read this. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. There will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the man, of, the man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call And they will call together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So it's not a matter of if, but a matter of when. It's coming. And the day is quick. Like shaft in the wind, it's coming. Number two, we don't know when. We simply do not know when. Matthew 24, 36. But concerning the hour or day, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son of Man, but the Father only. So we know it's coming, and we don't know when it is. 
So Zephaniah is saying, get ready. Get ready. Back to Zephaniah. Why are these countries going to be judged? You know, he's pronouncing judgment on all the countries around Judah. And and we want to know why. Right? Because it's one thing to just get up here and, and rail on you guys. Hey, we're all going to get judged, right? But it's another thing to say, this is why. This is why we're going to get judged. So we can change ourselves. And we can be changed. We have four verses that talk about why judgment's coming from chapter 2 and chapter 3. We find these in verses 8, 10, 15, and chapter 3, verse 2. Verse 8, I've heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Verse 10, this shall be their lot in return for their pride because they have taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. Verse 15, this is an exultant city that lived securely, that said in their hearts, I am and there is no one else. Chapter 3, verse 2, she listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Taunting, boasting, pride. Taunting, boasting, pride. Saying in their hearts, I am and there is no one else. She doesn't accept correction. She doesn't draw near to the Lord. She says in her heart, I am and there is no one else. So our idolatry that we've been talking about the last couple months all boils down to this. It boils down to a prideful and arrogant heart. However, this is a problem because we can't fix our hearts. You and I can't do this. Our idolatry problem is a heart problem. You and I have disobedient hearts. And it's from our nature that we have disobedient hearts, as Ephesians 2, 3 tells us. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. On our own, we we like to think that we know why God did everything, and, and we like to play God. This is silly. Idolatry is not something picked up in culture. Idolatry is cultured from within. It comes from right here. And the Bible says that you and I can never get away from it. Our hearts will constantly whore after idols until it ultimately kills us. For those of you a little disheartened right now, don't worry. Good news is coming. Good news is coming. It will be sunny. Not today, maybe, but it will God says, I will never leave you hanging. Switching gears a little bit to give us some context of Zephaniah, of what's going on here, of the bigger picture of all of this. Remember last week when when I mentioned the name Josiah and got really excited? I'm, I'm still excited. I was so excited that I asked my wife, hey, if we have a son, can we name him Josiah? And she kind of gave me one of these looks like, why not just like Hezekiah or like Melchizedek or something, you know, like, 
Which is great because in last service there was a kid here named Josiah and he had a friend whose name was Hezekiah. It's, it's awesome. It's awesome. So we have Josiah. We have Josiah. He comes on the scene as an eight-year-old kid. All right, we got G.I. Joes. We got Nintendo DS. We got an eight-year-old king who was, who was followed or who came after wicked king after wicked king after wicked king. Now, eight-year-old's on the scene. What do you think he's going to do? Very different. When he's 16... When Josiah is 16, through the help of some of the railings of Jeremiah and through, I think, some of the preaching of Zephaniah, reform starts to happen. This pendulum starts to swing again. And Josiah says, we will follow the Lord. We're going to do what he's commanded us to do. We're going to love him. And he starts doing some reforming. And, And in the process of this, Josiah orders that the temple that Solomon built be restored. He calls out to the people and he says, this temple right now is kind of just used as a storehouse. It's not being utilized for worship. I want to fix it up and I want to restore what Solomon gave to us. And he gave these orders. And what happened is, while the temple was being restored, they found something in the temple. They found something. They found the book of the law. They found the Torah. And someone brought it to Josiah, and they start reading it to him. And Josiah just comes undone. He just starts weeping and bawling and just tearing his clothes. He he knows that for hundreds of years, the people have abandoned the Lord. They're not doing what the Bible tells them they ought to do. And and he knows that, that they've totally run away. And he knows the destruction that's going to come. And he saw how imperfect they were and how short they fell. Which is why God gave them the Torah in the first place. To show them that you can't live up to this. You will never be able to do all of these things. After weeping and tearing his clothes, Josiah gathers all of the leaders together. Of all of society. I, I can't imagine what this would look like in Corvallis. But think about the entire city, or the entire country in this case, coming back to the Lord at once. This would be a mighty, mighty reform. And through Josiah, all of the, te- all of the idols are torn down that were erected in the temple. He restores Passover, and again, people are following the Lord. And things are good here. And Second Kings says this about Josiah. No king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to all the law of Moses, nor did anyone after him. So Josiah was this mighty, mighty king. So for a short while, the pendulum swings. Everyone's following the Lord. Idols are being abandoned. Worship is happening again. But it's not very long until our hearts come back into this. Taking a step back, let's look at the bigger picture. Judah was a country. It was a small country. Around them were three major players. We have the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and the Egyptians. Judah was kind of like the youngest cousin. You know, cute, but not really a threat to anyone. So we have this exchange that takes place between Josiah and the king of Egypt. At the time, Necho II. Necho II comes or sends a letter to Josiah, and he says, Josiah, 
Listen up here. You're small. We don't want anything to do with you as far as war, but we're just going to send our army through your country and we're going to go and fight the Babylonians. And Josiah says, no way. It's like, you, you, you're not coming through, through our country. I'm not having any of this. And he sends something back to him and says, forget it. And, and Nico again says, Josiah, this isn't your business. Like, I, I don't care about you. We're not, we're not fighting you. This isn't your war. But Josiah will have nothing to do with it. And so as Nico II is drawing his army up to go fight the Babylonians, going through Judah, Josiah says, let's fight them. Let's fight them. And what does a normal king do during a war like this? A normal king will stand back and kind of watch and see what's happening and give orders. You know, when to press forward, when to fall back. But Josiah the man's man pulls the ultimate Russell Crowe. He throws on a uniform that looks like all the other soldiers. And he says, if you're going down, I'm going down with you. And he hops in on this battle and he's recognized by Nico and he's killed. So the king is killed. So we have this dilemma now. Uh-oh, we're following the Lord. Things are good, but now our king's dead. Are we going to continue to follow the Lord? Or what? Or what? Coming back to Zephaniah, right in the middle of this, verse 7. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. All right, this is almost a question. God's saying, surely you're not going to go back. Right, remember, I, I've pronounced judgment. If you go back, surely you're not going to go back to idolatry. But finish verse 7. But all the more they were eager to make their deeds corrupt. I said, why? Why would you do this? But surely they wanted to go back because of their hearts. And God responds in verse 8. And he says, therefore, wait for me declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. All the earth shall be consumed. See, after Josiah was killed in battle, they throw up his son, and immediately it says he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And he lasted three months. Because when Nico was coming back from war with Babylon, he, he takes him. He takes the king. He takes him back to Egypt. And then he kind of throws up his other son, who is even more evil. And, and the whole pendulum swung and God's promise came true. Destruction came. Because 22 years after Josiah, Judah gets overthrown. They're done. No longer a people with their own land. 22 years. God's promises are true. Destruction was coming. Destruction came. Destruction came. Now we see this massive shift here after verse 8. It's a little bit confusing why, why such a major shift would happen. We're going to get into this. Verses 9 through 20. It's not my intention here to go through it all and, and to give an explanation why all of these fit into redemption. 
But what I want to do here is I want to do two things. Number one, I want to answer the question, what is our position? What, where do you and I stand in all of this? And number two, what is God's position? Where does he stand in all of this? So number one, what's our position? Where do we stand? The entire book of Zephaniah has been making a case for this point. And it comes to this. You and I worship created things, namely ourselves above God. And our heart's song sings, I am and there is no one else. We have wicked, disobedient hearts that do not look to God for for our joy, that do not look to God for our satisfaction. Taunting, boastful, prideful, listening to nobody, accepting correction from no one, not trusting the Lord, not drawing near. See, I was born with a disobedient heart because my dad has a disobedient heart. And he was born with a disobedient heart because his dad was born with a disobedient heart. All the way back to Adam. All the way back to Adam. And I have a nature that says, I will rule how I please. And the unfortunate thing is, there's no amount of effort that's going to free you from your heart. You can't get away from your heart. It doesn't matter how good of a person you are. Right? It doesn't matter how many hours of community service you do. It doesn't matter if you spend 12 hours a day reading the Bible. You cannot get away from your heart. This is why we fail again and again and again and again. This is why we do what we don't want to do. This is why we can listen to this message now and go home and do the exact same thing that you didn't want to do. This is why Judah can follow the Lord with one king and then the very next king turn from the Lord and follow idols again. This is where we stand. This is our position. Do not lose hope. Glory is coming. Because now we look to God's position. What is his position? Among other things, God is wholly perfect. He is righteous. He is magnificently glorious. And he is all-loving. Because he is ultimately righteous, we must be punished for our rebellion against him. We must. Now, now I know that there are people who will say, how is this fair? Right? How is it fair that because of one thing done wrong, because of one sin, that we are going to be judged forever? Right? First of all, I've yet to meet the man who's got one sin going for him. I've yet to meet that woman. I mean, if you're out there, you're hiding. But follow the logic. Follow the logic. Even in our broken, flawed system in America, it's not hard to understand that punishment is always given in proportion to whom the crime was committed. All right, let me say it like this. If you lie to me, nothing's really going to happen. All right, if we're outside after service and we're eating some bread together, we're having a good time, and you're telling me about your glory days in high school, how you were this all-star football player, you know, and it, finds that, and, and it turns out a couple weeks later that I find out that you're, you know, some fourth-string JV kicker, like, nothing's really going to happen, right? Nothing's going to, I'm going to think you're weird and, and maybe a little strange and maybe avoid you next time. 
no, I'm going to cling to you because you need help, right? <laughs> but nothing's going to happen. But let's up the ante a little, right? What if you're to lie under oath to a federal judge, right? We call this what? Perjury. That's five years in prison. This isn't like a night's stay at the local jail. This is five years in prison for essentially doing the same thing, for lying. Now, up it even more. What happens when you get to God's courtroom? What happens? God is just. He is righteous. And I know some of you will say, but isn't God all loving? Yes, he is, but he's just. Even in our broken system, we would be outraged. If, if a judge were to let a murderer go and say, oh, he told me he was sorry, right? He, he told me he's not going to do it again. You know, he seems like an honest guy. Yeah, we'll let him go, right? That would not be right. That would not be just. God must punish those who war against them. But we read something very differently in verses 9 through 20 of chapter 3. Something very different has happened. Verse 15 and 17 say, the Lord has taken away the judgment against you. He's cleared away your enemies. The Lord in your midst who is mighty will save. Wait, I, th- I, I thought I have a wicked heart. Right? I, I thought that I was sinful from nature. That is true. But... God gives us Jesus, who didn't come from Adam, who didn't come from this line of rebellion, who has a pure heart, who didn't follow any idols, and who took on our wrath on the cross, and in his resurrection imputes to us his righteousness, so that when judgment comes, and it will, When God sees you, if you've accepted Christ, he's not going to see you. He's going to see his son, Jesus. And that, my friends, is good news. And that is the only hope that we have. Because our hearts are disobedient. But Jesus's wasn't. God will see Jesus, not you. This is why God gave us the cross, because he knows that our lives are messed up. He knows. He's not surprised. When you're having a bad week, it's not surprising to God. When you mess up, it's not surprising. He says, that's why I gave you the cross. Right? When you're not a good wife, God says, that's why I gave you the cross. When you're a horrible husband... God says, that's why I gave you Jesus. Stop running away from me and trying to clean everything up on yourself only to make a mess of your life. Run to me. I'm the only thing that will clean you. It's such a joke in our society. We're always trying to clean everything up on our own, trying to to look this role. Run to Jesus. He knows. He's not surprised. That's why he gave us the cross. That's why we have the cross. Because we need it. We need it. So so here comes the, the question then. If Jesus has done everything, 
what's my role and my responsibility in idolatry? What are we to do? Because this is a serious question. Right? The Bible says flee from it, fight it, run from it. Jesus takes sin very seriously. He says if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. That's a serious notion. Take sin seriously. Idolatry rejects the cross. That is ultimately what idolatry does. Because in our hearts it says, no, I want to do it my way. I can do it myself. Thank you, but no thank you. Where the opposite of that is the cross that says, you can't do it on yourself. Only Jesus can. He did. Take it. It's a free gift. That is good news. So how do we fight this idolatry? How do we do it? Because it's one thing for me to get up here and say, we all need to fight idolatry. Right? And we can shake our fists. Yeah, we do. It's killing us. Right? How do we do this? We do it in two ways. Both starting with humility. The first way, we submit ourselves to one another. Submit to one another. The second is we submit ourselves to God's word. So in submission to one another, what does this look like? Let me ask you this. Who are you accountable to? Who is in your life that when you're messing up is going to say, and what are you doing? I know some of you can look right next to you and see that person, right? That doesn't count for this scenario. Your mom doesn't count, even though she will tell you. Who in your life is not impressed with you, but that loves you enough to tell you, man, what are you doing? What are you doing? If most of us were to be honest, there's probably no one in our lives that could be this honest with us. And we like it that way. I mean, ultimately, we like not having anyone tell us what to do or what we're doing is wrong. Because we want to be king. Again, it all boils down to pride. We don't want anyone telling us what to do or how to live. So, So my plea is, Get into relationships that intentionally focus on this. Whether that's a small group, an interaction group, um, whether that's kind of just bending some of the relationships you have now that are saying, hey, let's not just have fun together, but let's utilize this time to focus on life, to focus on the cross, to focus on the fact that we have this bent in us towards worshiping something other than Jesus. Who's there in your life that's going to do that for you? The second is submission to God's word. Listen to what Zephaniah is saying. I'm I'm not just up here yelling words for, for no reason. Listen to what the gospel says. Get into the word regularly. And don't read it like we do on Newsweek. Don't just flip through it. I study it. Learn from it. Be changed by it. Ask God to illuminate the truth of it to you. He will because He loves you. He loves you. So in response to the cross, we become the opposite of prideful. We become humble. We recognize that we are saved not because of us, not because of anything that we've done, 
This is why Christians ought to be the humblest of all people. Because we realize that we didn't save ourselves. That, that we have this wicked, disobedient heart. And that the only reason we're saved is because of Jesus. So this opens the door to anyone, to anybody out there. You don't have to, to live, you don't have to look good to love Jesus. He's saying, I'm here, come to me. Come to me. Bringing it back and closing with Zephaniah, we see nine things that God has promised that he has done in restoring us. At the end of chapter 3, we see in three verses, nine things. In verse 17, he will restore you, sorry, he will rejoice over you with gladness. I'm going to add this, because of Jesus. He will quiet you by his love because of Jesus. He will exalt over you with loud singing because of Jesus. I, God, will deal with all your oppressors because of Jesus. And I will save the lame because of Jesus. I will gather all the outcasts because of Jesus. I will change their shame into praise because of Jesus. Verse 20, I will bring you in because of Jesus. I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth because of Jesus. All of this is accomplished through Jesus on the cross as a free gift. God says, here's my son. Worship him, love him. He did it all for you. He did everything for you. Don't hide from him because you feel dirty. Run from him because he's the only thing that will clean. Love him. Worship him. What's our response? Our response is, is from verse 14 and 20. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. At that time, I will bring you in. At the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. So we end today with the decision. We end today with the decision that says, do I surrender my life to Jesus out of humility, or do I ignore him out of pride? It's a simple question. Do I surrender my life to Jesus out of humility, or do I ignore him out of pride? Now, as we, as we finish up the worship, worship service here, we're going to take communion, and we're going to sing some songs And if you've never thought of this before, if you've never thought of the idea that that you can't clean up your life on your own, that it's only through Jesus who brings all healing and all restoration and all hope, I want you to wrestle with that question right now. I, I don't want you to just put it in your pocket and go home. I want you to deal with it now. Take the first step of humility and find someone. Find someone. There's tons of people around here who would love to talk to you. I'd love to talk to you. Pastor Andy would. 
um, Pastor Paul up here, my dad. There are lots of people around here. Find someone. Take that step in humility. Take yourself off the throne and put Jesus up there because he's the only one who is worthy of our praise. Let's pray. Jesus, we have hope and life in you and only because of you. On our own, we are a sad and pathetic people who think that we know how everything works. We think we can create our own realities. We think that we will be satisfied by the things that this earth has to offer. And we run after them all the time, buying things that that we already have, thinking that these will satisfy Jesus, you are the only one who will satisfy. God, take the blinders off of our eyes. Take the plugs out of our ears. Let us know that destruction is coming for those who don't put their trust in you. Jesus, we worship you. Amen.